0: So good, uh, so good to see you all here as we are tonight on week six of a seven-part series looking at the seven woes of Jesus to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. And tonight we're going to look at woe number six, just a few verses here in Matthew chapter 23. Well, nearly a hundred years ago, um, one of the most significant events, certainly in modern history, was coming to a close, and that is World War I was finishing in 1918. But as World War I was finishing, something else developed throughout every part of the world that actually was more deadly, some statistics would say, even possibly twice as deadly as World War I was. And that is what is known as the Spanish Flu of 1918. The Spanish flu of 1918, which was the, w- the, the first virus they have looking back at H1N1. Now, if that sounds familiar, H1N1, does everyone remember the swine flu from about t- 10, 8, 9 years ago? It's the same type of virus of the flu that went around. And we don't know exactly where it started. Lots of scholars and doctors have gone back and tried to trace its origins. Some find it to parts of, of Europe, some in other countries, some even here to the United States. But there was a numer- a, a numerous factors that, that started to, to spread this. In, that in 1918, modern technology had come. And many of the times that this, this flu epidemic started where soldiers were in hospitals, sometimes of which saw well over 10,000 people a day coming in and out. And this virus started to spread, this flu virus, all over the world. It was first reported as this virus here actually in the United States in Kansas is where the first thing was identified. And just a few weeks later spread throughout the whole country. They're shocked that remote islands in the Pacific Ocean suffered from this virus. The people who lived in the Arctic Circle caught this virus. 500 million People were contaminated with the Spanish flu in 1918 and 1919, seeing approximately between 50 and 100 million people died from the flu in that year. In this country, in the U.S., life expectancy dropped by 12 years. That year, because this was a strange virus of the flu, normally the flu affects people with weak immune systems. So those who typically are near the end of their life, or are much older, or those who are very at the beginning, one or two years old, are most likely to die due to flu-like symptoms. The majority of people who died to this flu were between 20 and 40 years old. It attacked young adults and dropped the age expectancy in our country It was one of, it's been reported, one of the deadliest natural disasters in human history as it started small, someplace, and it started to spread and contaminate all over the world. See, that's how things go sometimes. Viruses go that way, but there's other things that spread and contaminate as well. Ever heard a rumor and tried to figure out where it started? Right, it just it spreads and it contaminates, and you can't find you know where it's going, but you have no idea where it started. And sometimes it seems like that it's the bad things that start to contaminate everyone. We're like, why can't people start spreading good rumors about everyone? Right, the good rumors never go viral. It's the bad rumors that start to spread and get fire and be spread about. And today we're going to talk about contamination and the spread of of bad things going out into the world. And so if you have your Bibles today, would you open them to the book of Matthew, the book of Matthew chapter 23. You hopefully received an insert when you came that as Matthew 23, the verses we'll be looking at as well as a few other verses that we'll, we'll look at tonight as well. Matthew chapter 23. For for those of you who haven't been here or to catch us all up, so we're on the same page, Jesus has been addressing the Pharisees, who were the religious elite, the rulers of the day. They would have been well respected among society. Those who followed after God sought to carry out each and every one of God's rules and regulations, wanted full obedience to God. But Jesus is accusing them in these woes. Uh, accusing them of some of their hypocrisy, of some of the blindness that their own religiosity has caused to themselves and to others. And so tonight we're going to look here just at two verses tonight in Matthew chapter 23. Two verses in chapter 23, verses 27 and 28. Jesus says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus accuses the Pharisees of being like whitewashed tombs. Now when I first read that, I didn't even know what Jesus meant, but I'm like, if someone were to call me that, I would feel insulted. And I don't even know what they're saying. But if someone says you're like a tomb, you're like, I don't think that's a compliment. So what is Jesus saying to the Pharisees? He, he, in a sense, is repeating the woe that we looked at last week, which charged them of hypocrisy, of looking on the outside one way and inwardly looking differently. So last week we looked at verses 25 and 26, where Jesus says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate. But inside they are full of greed and self indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. And there certainly is, it's clear here, this charge of hypocrisy and lawlessness to the Pharisees here, right? That you look one way on the outside, but inside you're actually something different. But, but in this time, when, when Jesus specifically doesn't just call them tombs, that he calls them whitewashed tombs, the people who understood this, and the Pharisees specifically would have known that Jesus isn't just talking about a beautiful tomb on the outside, with something dead on the inside. See, for a Jew, coming into contact with a dead body made them ceremonially unclean. And if you came into contact with a dead body, this is seen both in Leviticus and in Numbers and in Deuteronomy. If you came in contact with a dead body, then you had to go through a process of cleanliness, which would include a washing after three days and then another washing after seven days. And a week later, you would be declared ceremonially clean and you were then allowed to worship again in the tabernacle or in the temple. Now see, this time of year when Jesus gives this is right in the last week of Jesus's life. It's the last week of his life. And so what that is, is it's Passover week. And during the Passover week, multiples of people, multitudes would be flocking into Jerusalem. The population could have even doubled or tripled in. And so pilgrims from all over would have come to Jerusalem with one intent and purpose in mind, to worship in the temple at Passover. To worship in the temple at Passover. Now, as they were coming in, these were people often who would travel from a long ways out and they wouldn't necessarily know where all of the tombs and where the things would be. Because here's the thing, back in Jesus's day, the graveyards weren't like how we have them now, right? I've never just gone for a walk and ended up being like, oh, look, it's a graveyard. How have I gone wrong? Why am I here standing amongst the tombs? I've clearly seen, right? When you know when you're going into one and you know where you're going, But back then, a graveyard or tombs were scattered throughout the hills and the countryside. And Jerusalem was amidst a very hilly territory. And they often, in caves and in other places, would try and bury bodies in the tombs there. And so, when they say that they're whitewashed tombs, it was a specific thing done right before Passover, that they would go out and actually mark the tombs so that the pilgrims coming into Jerusalem would see where the dead bodies were And because they would see where they were, they wouldn't accidentally contaminate themselves and make them unclean. Because if they came into contact with a dead body walking in that week, it meant they would not be able to go and offer sacrifices at the temple. And so when Jesus is talking specifically about whitewashed tombs, this is something that many of the Pharisees and the others had probably just been a part of. So Jesus is not just saying that they look good on the outside but are dead on the inside. By calling them whitewashed tombs, what he's saying is you are actually contaminating people and making them unclean, just how a pilgrim would walk in and become unclean due to contact with a dead body. It's not just a charge of hypocrisy, but they are actually contaminating others. Their lives are contaminating and leading people away from God. See, this is the opposite, of course, of what God calls people who follow him and love him to have an effect on our world. If you look here, the first verse that I have down here underneath Matthew 5, 13, a well-known verse of how we should be living and be seen in the world. Jesus says this to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. See, salt wasn't just a thing back then that your doctor told you to eat less of. In our world today, salt's in everything. None of us, I don't think, are worried about our salt intake in our diets, right? It's everywhere. But salt back then was a means of preservation. It wasn't so much a means of seasoning, but a means of preservation and keeping things in the way that God had created them. And as God's representatives in the world, that's how we are to be, the salt of the earth, to preserve the world in the order that God has created it to be, not to contaminate it, but instead to preserve it. Followers of God are to be in the world, but not of the world. They're to be a godly influence where God has placed them, not contaminating and leading people astray from God. It's why when the people of Israel were sent into exile, the prophet Jeremiah challenged them that while they were there to seek the welfare, seek the blessing, seek the prosperity of the city where God placed them. That was the goal of God's people. And so as we think today of these Pharisees who were like these tombs that were actually contaminating people harming them from God, leading them from God, rather than being like the salt of the earth. What amongst us are outlined tonight is for us to think of three attitudes in our lives, three attitudes in our lives that lead to contamination, three attitudes in our lives that actually if these are continually true in our lives, when people come into contact with us, they could be easy for us to come into contact with us and be led astray from God rather than be led to God. We don't want to be like the Pharisees here who lead people away from God and contaminate people. We want to be the salt of the earth who lead people back to God. The first attitude that can lead people and lead others into contamination is when we we struggle with the comparison of our lives. The comparison of our lives. In Matthew 7, which is here on your handout, Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2, Jesus says this, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. See, the danger that we have in judging others is that, especially when it comes to religion, and especially when it comes to following God, is this we don't know what God knows. We don't know what God knows. And we can look at the people sitting next to us. You can do it right now. You can do it right now. You can look at the people sitting next to you. You can make some judgments about them. Some of you, it would be totally random because you've never met the person before. Some of you, it's your spouse and you're making a lot of judgments right now and you should stop. All right, you should stop that. But we can make judgments about people. But here's the thing, we can't look at people and we can't see what God sees when he looks at them. And so we don't know what's going on in their hearts. We don't know what's going on in their lives. And most of the time, we don't know what's going on in their past. And oftentimes, we struggle with this sin, this attitude of comparison. And when we start down this cycle of comparison, comparison is a root of how pride develops in our lives, of how pride develops and grows in our lives. See, it's shocking sometimes if we think about in Scripture what God hates more than anything, what God can't stand. We could perhaps throw some things out, but did you know what makes the top of the list? In the book of Proverbs chapter 6, Proverbs chapter 6, it says this, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are abomination to him. Number one, haughty eyes. Now, we don't use that expression, haughty eyes. We call people haughty if we think they're cute, but haughty, we don't use that expression, right? Haughty eyes, I've never heard someone. What are haughty eyes? Pride, arrogance. Comparing, looking at others and saying, I'm better than they are. You see what they do? I'm better than that person. Haughty eyes. Along with it, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste unto to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies and who sows discord among brothers. See, we would say, what does God hate? God hates murderers. God hates people who plan and do evil. God hates liars. And what does the Proverbs put first? God hates pride. He hates people who look down and compare others to themselves and find themselves to be better. See, when we compare ourselves, the tendency is to make ourselves look better than we should. We typically compare down. This isn't always true, but we typically compare down to others. So we ourselves feel better about this. And as we do this, it starts to cultivate in, our, in ourselves a sense of pride and arrogance. See, I've seen this true in my own life. And I was thinking back of a time th- this, this week of when I was comparing myself to the wrong thing and God kind of brought a lesson in humility for me. See, when I was growing up in, in high school and, and in junior high and high school, I raced mountain bikes. I, was a, I, I raced mountain bikes. And so when I was 14 years old, the division went through 14 for junior high, I won multiple state championships. It also helps that I was this tall when I was 13. 13. Right, I was like a giant amongst thirteen-year-olds. Right, so I was really good when I was fourteen. The next year, I moved up to the high school division. Right, I wasn't no longer comparing myself against fourteen-year-olds. I was now racing against fifteen, all the way through eighteen-year-olds. But I still thought, you know what, I've done. I won a couple state championships last year. I'm really good at this mountain biking thing, and I still remember. We, we went to a race. My family did. It was a national series race. There was about five of them spread all throughout the country. And this one was in West Virginia. And we lived in Michigan. So it wasn't too far of a drive. So we took a long weekend. We went down to the mountains of West Virginia, which are totally beautiful, by the side note. right? We went down there and we went to the race. And as soon as that race started, I realized, oh, I've been comparing myself to the wrong people. right? I thought I was good. And suddenly I'm looking around I'm like, Oh, I'm not very good. I'm not very good. And I looked the results up today with the internet. Everything's online, man. You can't hide it. Everything's online. There were 57 finishers in the men's race for 15 to 18-year-olds. I got 56th. My brother got 57th. I beat my brother. Right? I'm so, sorry, David. I love you, dude. But I beat you that race. The internet will prove it, all right? Now, in my defense, there are people in that race who have gone on to be US Olympians and some of the most successful US cyclists in history. But that certainly isn't me. But once I started comparing myself to them, suddenly I didn't seem that great anymore. See, the Bible teaches that if we're going to compare ourselves to anyone, that comparison should be to Jesus. If you want to compare your life to someone, compare yourself to Christ. That's to be the measure, that's the standard not your neighbor, not your cousin, not your aunt, your uncle, that coworker, your boss. It's easy to find people that we can look down on. And when we do that, we develop pride in our lives. Beware of subtle comparison in your heart. This happens so subtly. It's not a conscious thing where you decide, I'm just gonna start comparing myself to feel better. But it subtly happens as, as we, and if we allow it, pride will start to grow in our hearts and in our lives. And if pride starts to grow in our hearts and our lives, we're not having the effect on the world that God would have us to be. In fact, we're contaminating people rather than bringing them to Christ. The second attitude, the second attitude that would um, contaminate people rather than bring them to Christ is the conforming of our minds. The conforming of our minds. And I have here on our text tonight, Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is the Apostle Paul, and he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to prevent your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This, in Romans chapter 12, comes on the summary of 1 to 11, perhaps the greatest explanation of, of what Jesus has done for us in all of Scripture. And immediately after that, because of what Jesus has done, he says, don't conform to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By conform is another word of basically saying, don't copy the world. Don't copy what the world is doing. Don't copy the, what the world values, the way the world thinks, but instead think differently. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to mimic the behavior and mannerisms of the people around you? Have you ever found yourself just accidentally, like you hang out with a friend that you haven't seen in a while, and suddenly you're like, I'm talking different. Like, why, why am I doing that? I have some, some family um, on, my, on my wife's side who comes from down south. And like, we leave Indiana and go into Kentucky, and suddenly they have a southern drawl. And I'm like, what just happened? Like, we haven't even gotten out of the car. Why are you talking differently? Right? But, it, it, but it's so easy. Instead of being transformed, we just mimic the behavior of so many of the people around us. And for oftentimes for us as Christians, we don't live in a Christian bubble, a Christian commune, or we don't interact with anyone. That's not what God calls us to do. But the challenge for us can be it's really easy to go out into the world and just mimic what everyone else in the world is doing. Just to conform, just to copy, just to do exactly as they are doing. And what ways do we conform our minds, our thinking to the world? There's many, but a few came to mind this week. I think one way that we conform our thinking to the world is how we think about success. How we think about success. What does it mean to have a successful life? Well, if you're in the world to have a successful life, it probably has something to do with money, Job status, career status, and it's something to do with relationships and 2.5 kids that are well behaved and never talk back in public, right? The world has its definition of success that it would give you that this is what success is. But for God, I think oftentimes that looks very different. What God would have us to be a success in life. One of the most shocking passages to me, I think, when it comes to thinking about success is this passage in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament and he experienced this miraculous call of God. And and the recall is recorded for us in Isaiah 6. If you've been around church, you know it for a while. And he says that he heard the voice of God crying out, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah raises up and he cries out, and you know what, here I am, send me. But we often stop there. Do you know what God called Isaiah to? Sometimes we forget what God called Isaiah to. This is the next verse. Go, he said, go to these people. You will keep hearing, but never understand. You'll keep seeing, but never perceive. The heart of the people will be dull. their Their ears heavy and their eyes will be blind and they will never see with their eyes, hear with their ears or understand with their hearts. They will never turn and be healed. And Isaiah's like, wait, what did I sign up for? His next request, um, then I said, how long, O Lord? Right, he's like, that doesn't sound fun." How long? And God's reply, until cities lie waste without inhabitants, houses without people, and the land is in a desolate waste. Was Isaiah a success in his ministry by the world's standards in any way? No, no. But what did God call him to? God called him to faithfulness. See, in God's economy, success is faithfulness. Success is faithfulness to God, faithfulness to your spouse, faithfulness to what he's called you to. That's what success looks like in God's economy. And we've flipped it so much that we value other things that we've promoted because so often we just mimic the thinking of the world rather than the thinking of God. Another common area in which we mimic the world's behavior is when it comes to happiness, when it comes to being happy, right? The world will probably tell us most of the time, this is the most important thing in your life, is that you be happy. That's the most important thing, right? You be happy. Or as young kids say these days, I hang out with high schoolers a lot, you do you. You do you. You be happy. Whatever it takes, whatever you, you do you. You find your own happiness and whatever that costs. It doesn't matter what any religion would say, how it affects the relationships in your life, what the rules would say, what the laws would say. That none of that matters. You do whatever it takes for you to find your own happiness and joy. And sometimes as Christians, we've bought into this thinking. We see it with how we often talk about church. And if they sing a song that we don't like, we make sure other people know it. I didn't really like that song. I didn't, I didn't, re- I didn't really like it. It didn't make me feel happy today. I didn't really like the sermon. He went a couple minutes too long. No one ever complains that you go too short on the sermon. It always has to be too long. Never heard that complaint, right? It, it didn't make me. What, and it's all about what we want because the life is about what we want. It's our expectations that we are happy and we get exactly what we want. And God's focus when it comes to happiness is he says, be holy as I am holy. That's God's focus for our lives is holiness, not necessarily our happiness. Now, I don't want you to miss, there is incredible joy and happiness in following after God. God sent out to ruin your life. Please don't, get, please don't think I'm saying that. There is incredible joy and happiness in following God. But happiness is not the main goal and it certainly looks different than how our world describes happiness. Another thing that's different is the focus of our lives. The focus of our lives. It's easy to conform to the world's thinking that it's all on ourselves, it's all about us, our careers, whatever we would want to be selfish in our thinking. When, when Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Deny yourself, not fulfill yourself, deny yourself and take up your cross. Whoever would lose their life for me will find it, is what Jesus promises That the focus of our lives isn't on finding our purpose, but on fulfilling God's purpose. That it moves off of us and onto God. As I was reading this week, I came across an article, and the article was good, but the title of the article was even better. And this was the title of the article, which I just thought is such an excellent question to ask ourselves. Are you shaped by the world or by the word? That's being the word of God. Are you shaped more by the world or by the word? See, if Christians, if we represent God in this world, yet we've conformed, we've just copied what the world would say we should value, what success is, how we live our lives, we're gonna lead people astray from God rather than leading people to God. And as followers of Jesus, we can't just conform to the patterns that we see around us, but we need to be transformed and to lead people to Christ, not lead people away from Christ. The third attitude in our hearts that can lead towards contamination of others is cynicism in our hearts. Cynicism in our hearts. Now, what does cynicism look like in the world? What does cynicism look like even in the church today? Because there's a lot of, I think, cynical people around and there's a few, as I thought and read this week, of commonalities that when you think of someone who is cynical. First, there's been some hurt and some pain in their life. There's been some hurt and some pain. But newsflash, if you live life longer than just a few minutes, there's going to be some hurt and some pain in your life. If you walk with Jesus, if you go to church for more than a couple Sundays, someone at church is going to hurt. There's going to be some pain. Someone's going to say something that you don't like. There's going to be some conflict Hurt and pain are inevitable. So it's not necessarily a unique hurt or a resounding hurt. It's not like some extreme trauma had to be happened. Sometimes that could be the case, but it's not always. Sometimes the hurt and the trauma that turn people cynical is a look that someone didn't say hi, a comment someone made in passing that they overheard and misunderstood. But there's been hurt and their pain in their lives. And this hurt and pain eventually can lead to a critical spirit in their hearts. It leads to a critical spirit in their hearts towards others. Where rather than seeing problems and finding solutions, instead they just focus on the negative. And as we said when we started, the negative likes to go viral. And so they become, it's easy to gossip. And we start spreading the negative rather than thinking of how we could help. And we start spreading it all around. And in Christianity, we see this critical spirit in a few different areas. We see people being critical of the church. It's easy to whip on the church. Oh, the church this, the church that. It's easy to see all the faults with the church. You know why? Because the church is filled with a bunch of sinners like you and me. Isn't it? It's easy to find fault with the church. And we can just focus on the negatives and be so critical. Oh, this, they did this, they said this. I don't like the people here. It's easy to be critical of the church. It's easy to be critical of church leaders because guess what? Your pastors, I'm one of them. We're a bunch of sinners too and we make mistakes and we say the wrong thing and we're not perfect either and it's easy to be critical of church leaders and what they've done or what they haven't done or what they should have done and to focus on what what you've been hurt by and what they said. And another criticism that often goes out from Christians is critical of our culture critical of the culture. Whatever the hot button moment is, we can just get on our high horse and rail about that and rail about this. And of course, well, back in the day, it wasn't like that. Back in my time, right? Back when it was this way, we love to think of those things and we can be so critical of the world around us. And with this critical spirit often comes a sense of defensiveness as well. Defensiveness. Which is like a cycle because if someone would point out and say, man, you're, you're really critical all the time. You're so, and you would get defensive and you wouldn't want to hear that. You would want to push them away because you would want to protect yourself to point the blame on to others. See, defensiveness tends to be the response of many of us, including myself. I was, uh, this afternoon, no joke, as I was working on this point, I had just finished working on my third point, and I wanted to take a little break, so I scrolled through Facebook for about 10 minutes this afternoon while I was reading an apple, reading, eating an apple. I was not reading my apple, there was not a lot there, all right? As I'm scrolling through Facebook, just kind of mindlessly, right, kill a couple minutes, I saw someone commented on Facebook this morning. I preached this morning here at the church. Someone posted a comment on Facebook this morning about my sermon, and it wasn't very kind, And because I'm a pastor, I was like, oh, that's okay. I'm sure they're struggling with their own. (sighs) That was not the attitude in my heart. I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to put you on blast. Let's go. I'm going to screenshot this. I'm going to send this around. Should I reply myself or should I get other people to reply? I need to defend myself. How dare you say in public that you didn't appreciate that there was something wrong? There was some, how dare you? And then literally I like, look down at my notes and my notes are open and I read defensiveness and I go, take a breath, <laughs> take a breath, relax, relax, right? You don't have to go out and defend yourself against every single thing that comes at you. See, when we get defensive, and what even my attitude showed of my heart this morning or this afternoon, is it's really easy to see the wrong in others when we're defensive and it's harder to see the wrong in ourselves, Right When we're defensive, we're never wrong, but we can see all the wrong. We want to point it out and push the blame, push things off to other people. And these cause us to be cynical in the church and even cynical towards the church and towards other Christians. So how do we get rid of cynicism in our lives? How do we get rid of this cynical spirit and heart that could develop within us? A few ideas for us tonight. The first is just to get perspective The first is to get perspective. And for me, the best place to get perspective is from the stories of others and from the stories of scripture. The stories of others and from the stories of scripture. Whatever hurt and pain has happened to you, you're not alone. You're not the only person it's happened to. And there's probably someone, probably even in the church now, who's gone through the same hurt and the pain and they've seen redemption through it. I know for me, I was so thankful This last fall, I've shared this before, but this last fall was a difficult season, a painful season for my wife and I, and God was working a lot of stuff in my life, and I was very thankful that a mentor of mine called me and just encouraged me. He said, hey, listen, man, I know you've preached great sermons on this before. I've listened to them, but just take a few times this next week and read through the life of Joseph, who's wronged by so many people in his life, yet comes to forgiveness, and he doesn't point any blame, but sees God working in it all i tell you what, just as I read through scripture, it helped bring a perspective in my life that I was like, you know what? You you can forgive even when you feel like you've been wrong, that it hasn't worked out the way you thought it would. God's still in control. God's still on the throne. It, It might not make sense to me. It didn't make sense to Joseph, but God is still reigning. You don't have to be bitter and angry. You can help get perspective on your life. And God's word often brings the perspective to our pain that we need. God's word can bring that perspective to us. Another way that we get rid of cynicism from our lives is forgiveness. Is forgiveness. Oftentimes people who are critical have never forgiven the people in their lives. They're stored up bitterness and anger. See, the hurt and the pain that you've experienced in your life is real. But responding in anger and bitterness is your choice. Hurt and pain is real, and it's real for each and every one of us. But anger and bitterness is a choice that you make, and you're responsible for it, not the people who hurt you. You're responsible for how you respond to hurt and to pain and suffering in your life. And if you can get to a point to forgive, to forgive as God forgave us, which means not just this limitless forgiveness, but a forgiveness that actually forgives. It doesn't forgive and then hold it over someone else's head and keep bringing it back up. God doesn't bring our sin back up to us. He doesn't dangle it in front of us. That's the kind of forgiveness we're to have towards others. Another step in getting rid of cynicism is to repent. Repentance. To see our own pride. How we've been part of the problem that we so often complain about. To admit our own shortcomings. Our own failures. Friends, there's actually great freedom in repentance. If you haven't done it recently, it doesn't make sense. Like, what do you mean there's great freedom in admitting you're wrong? Yeah, there is. There actually is. When you admit, hey, you know, I don't, I don't have it all together. I messed that up. That, that, was, that was really my fault, God, and I repent. Would you forgive me? Would you forgive others that I've wronged? Another way to get rid of cynicism is to find hope, to find hope. So often when we get caught with a cynical attitude, it leads us into this place where we don't think things will ever change. People are out to get us. The church is a bunch of bullies. God never does anything good anymore. And it just spirals down and down and down. But find hope. Find hope in what God is doing in the world. See what God is still doing. See the good in what God is doing in our world and get a glimpse of what God may do in the future. And that when we get rid of this cynicism in our hearts and we don't let this build up, we won't just contaminate others and lead them down this deep spiral as well of criticism and defensiveness. But we'll lead them to find forgiveness and repentance. See, right after that passage where Jesus talked about salt, he talked about light. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16, Jesus says this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father, who is in heaven. We're not called to withdraw from the world and to make our own Christian communities where we never go out and interact with others, but we're to be a part of the world. But as we go, God's call for us is to let our light shine. It's my prayer that as people from this church and Christians in this city and Christians in our world go out into our world, that we're seen as a light in the world, shining the light of Christ towards others. And we're not seen as whitewashed tombs, people who are just prideful and arrogant and cynical and actually leading others astray from Jesus, like how the Pharisees were, but that we would be what God has called us to be, the light of the world, showing Jesus to others. Why? So that God would get glory, so that God would be glorified in and through our lives. God, we do thank you that you can save us and you can redeem us from these attitudes of pride and comparing, that you can transform the way we think, and you can save us even from cynicism in our hearts, such a critical spirit that can so subtly develop in our lives. God, I pray tonight that if we sense any of these attitudes in our hearts, that we would repent. God, we repent of our pride, that we compare ourselves to others and we find ourselves too good, that we, that we think we're too good. God, we repents that we so often copy the world. We're not transformed by you. And that so often we have cynicism in our hearts rather than hope and joy for the future. God, may we in our repentance find freedom because we know that in your heart, we will always find forgiveness. We thank you for that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.